This is the Lost Start of Communication, hosted by Molly and Trisha. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Lost Start of Communication podcast. Today with us, we have Rabbi David Cohen. He is a rabbi based in the New York area. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much, ladies, for having me. It's great to be here. I love talking about communication. I love communicating. So I think we're going to have a good time. I think so, too. So, Rabbi David, tell us a little bit about yourself and all of the different things that you do. Thank you for that invitation to share. (laughs) So I do a lot of I like to consider myself a jack of all trades and a master of some. You know, some people say jack of all trades, master of none. So I'm not that humble. I, I have accomplished a few things, but I'm certainly still trying to work successfully toward others. Very succinctly, at present, I am a congregational rabbi in the five towns area of New York. I have a lovely congregation. I've been here for about three years. I work with people in that context. I also spend most of my time as a senior relationship officer developing partnerships to support an amazing organization called Yacha that works with special needs children and their families, letting them support across the United States, North America, Canada, as well as in Israel. And in my spare time, I also have a small therapy practice where I work with couples in particular, helping them communicate more effectively uh, and strengthen their marriages. You mentioned you're excited to talk about communication and obviously all of the things that you just described, including your hobby of having a therapy practice, all (laughs) have to do with communicating. So I'm just curious, how did you get, or how did you become passionate about that in general? I know you have a law background as well. So what inspired you to pursue this avenue of helping people with their communication? So I think one of the areas that I, that I am innately decent at is I'm a pretty good listener. And I think that, you know, ironically, it's something that I talk about often you know, God created us with, with two ears and, and, and one mouth. And maybe that's a sign or a symbol. We have a concept like this in some of our Jewish sources that we're really supposed to list, listen at least doubly as much as we, as we speak. And to be an effective communicator, I think one really has to be astute. One has to hear what is being said to them, be able to try to glean. And communication, of course, goes way beyond just it's not just the words, it's the intonation, inflection, et cetera, the surrounding circumstances, and also just trying to kind of figure out circumstances about what's going to be effective in different contexts, even when there's no communication, when it's silent. So I think from a young age, I tended to be observant. I tend to kind of listen, see, be able to kind of intuit uh, different things from what I was seeing. And that, I think, ultimately was a segue uh, to the different types of work that I do that, that works with people and communicates with people because I think the prerequisite to effectively doing that is being able to listen. I can relate to that a lot. I feel like when I was a child, I was also an observer and I was labeled as shy or quiet or judgy too, but it's definitely served me as I've grown up. I feel like I'm also a really good listener and I feel like it's also helped support my love for communication. So I definitely relate to that. I think that's a really cool background that you have. No, thank you. And it's interesting. I mean, it's it's interesting contrast. My wife happens to be an excellent listener. She's definitely more introverted. And I think that gives her the ability to kind of take things in as opposed to kind of always outputting. Interestingly enough, I'm I'm not an introvert at all. And and I always was an extrovert. And even in, in my younger years, I tended to be in leadership roles and tended not boisterous, but I tended to be out there. 
I think it's an important point that you can be, I think people can be good listeners from both positions. I think both from an introvert position as well as from an extrovert position doesn't, it doesn't preclude somebody who's an extrovert from also kind of at the same time while they're out there kind of taking stock of what's surrounding them. I love that point because we talk on the show so often about the importance of being a good listener and the value that comes with that, but we've never actually discussed the fact that being a good listener doesn't mean you're just sitting by observing. Maybe we've touched on it a little, but I like the way that you frame that, that you can be an extroverted person who listens well or an introverted person who listens well just as you can be an extroverted person who expresses themselves well or an introverted person who also can express themselves well. So I love that. You know, I think that's, I, I just formulated that as we're talking. That's why I appreciate, you know, things come to the fore as you're speaking. I didn't really, I never thought of that before, but I think it's, I think it's accurate. I think, and just to succinctly say that, I think the point really is kind of focus. The, the, the linchpin, whatever your personality type is, is to be focused and to be present. So you can be present, again, whatever form a person is present, but I think the, <clears throat> the key word is presence in terms of being in your environment and not being somewhere else. That's what enables a person, I think, to most effectively be able to communicate with those around them. And I think that's so hard nowadays, especially with technology coming into play. I struggle with that so much. Like if my phone's on my desk, especially with all of the work we're doing online, like my brain will be elsewhere. So it's really important to that word focus and think about what we're actually communicating in the moment. So I love that point. I So given that you said listening comes pretty naturally to you, as I believe it does to Molly and myself as well, what strategies have you found to be helpful when you're either speaking to a group or working with your therapist and your counseling to help people who aren't naturally good listeners? Because sometimes if you're naturally good at something, it's easy to take it for granted or forget that someone else doesn't have this intuitive ability to be empathetic or to listen. So how do you or what tips do you give for people who that doesn't come naturally to, and they have to work really hard at being effective listeners. It's a great question. Great question, Trisha. And I'm not sure, I'm not sure I'm such a natural listener, but I, I, I am, I work hard at it. And I think that if I had to give advice or nobody's really asked me that question before I come to think of it per se. Uh, but that being said, I think, yeah, I think the advice and guidance really is, is, is kind of, you have to work at it. You have to really try to remove all distractions, like we talked, we just mentioned, Molly, the phone. I mean, the phone is really uh, detrimental to you know just getting the phone. Like you're out, to, you're out to dinner with your significant other. Like, get the phones off the table. Like, make sure they're. I sometimes don't even bring my phone with me when I'm going out with my wife for an hour or two because it's a conscious way to kind of disconnect and be present. So I think it's something that's. A, it's I think it's an acquire. I mean, it's, yeah, people. Some people just. We all think differently, and maybe things stick in our brains different. You know, I'm sure there are uh, neuropath, you know, neuropathical, you know, uh, studies that show that maybe there's different skill sets. But at the end of the day, I think it's something that requires focus and work and effort and, and caring, meaning you have to really care about the person in front of you. And that's also kind of like a conscious choice. The more you care about what's in front of you, the more you can kind of push away. I once talked to a mentor of mine about this and he was saying, I asked him, because he's an amazing listener. And I said, how do you how are you such a great listener? And he said, I really said, I, I, I once asked this question once, cause I was, you know, I, I admire people that are really great at the skill. And he was like, 
when I'm sitting in front of a person, there's nobody else or nothing else in the world that's in front of me because I just care so much about that person in front of me. So I think that's, that's what to aspire toward. I love that because if you're working on developing the ability to care for people, that's going to manifest itself in other ways that will just make your life better than if you're saying, all right, I'm following this checklist of making eye contact and nodding my head and not looking at my phone. So I love that. It's really, it's also, it's something that I, I think about a lot. It's, it's really about getting ourselves out of the way. Meaning what distracts mm-hmm. us often from being present with others is ourselves. It's putting ourselves, prioritizing ourselves or our needs or, or, or some other priority. And the art of listening to some degree is kind of silencing the I and making room for the, for the we or for the, for the other, making space for the other. Very true. I'm going to write that down. I really like that. <laughs> so I'm sure as your work as a rabbi and speaking to different congregations, I would assume that you've probably fostered this presence of, you know, people feel like you care about them. So tell us a little bit more about your work as a senior relationship officer. So at your, um, am I not for profit? Yeah, that's, a, that's, yeah. that's, uh, that's something that I'm very passionate about. And it was a beautiful segue, meaning I was a congregational rabbi full-time for a decade in Manhattan. And it got to a point, just various different reasons, it was time for me to transition to something else. And one of the skills that I had developed in my years, inadvertently, I had developed the skill of, of being able to solicit funds, fundraise for different projects within the synagogue, within the community. Now, what's, what's so interesting is that to be a good fundraiser, you have to be an excellent listener. You have to be a great communicator. You're communicating a message. You're communicating a value. You're communicating a need. You have to put the donor first. You have to understand what the donor's need is as opposed to what your need is. So all the things we've been talking about as backdrop here are very paramount in successfully building relationships and partnerships and support in a not-for-profit. So it was kind of like a natural transition, but it was exciting for me because there's an entrepreneurial part to it in the sense that it's kind of businessy. You're dealing with business people. You're, you're, you're focused around money. You are identifying prospects who are of high net worth. So that's kind of a different genre of personality or person or intellectual capability but people inherit money too but i'm saying a lot of people who have made their own money tend to be have a certain acuity or skill set so there's a kind of excitement about that there's, a, there's an entrepreneurship to it and it's it's something that kind of naturally flowed from some of my skills that i continue to work on to this day and it brought me to this realm it was kind of a marriage of i have a son my eldest child was born with a disability and this organization called Yachad, which in Hebrew means together, that's a not-for-profit that services across the United States and beyond as well, the individuals who have disabilities, who need different types of programming that we provide, support that we provide. So it was a perfect fit. It was kind of a marriage of entrepreneurial spirit with communication, listening skills, coupled with something I'm passionate about, which is servicing children like my son. How was that experience for you, if you don't mind speaking about it, when you found out your son had Down syndrome and just living with that as well? That was very, very difficult. It's interesting. When I was, when I was in my late teens, early 20s, I actually was a counselor in a camp for special needs children for three summers. And I enjoyed kind of giving and interacting with this very pure population very meaningful work, very inspiring, very uplifting. But I'll tell you a great story that, that will we'll kind of segue with that. So my grandfather, my maternal grandfather, was a congregational rabbi for many years, and he always helped people and was there for them when they were ill. 
And then at a certain juncture in my life, in my childhood, my grandmother got ill. And my grandfather was like beside himself and he wasn't able to deal with it. So my mother said to my, to my, her father, to my grandfather, dad, you're a rabbi. You've been dealing with these things for 30, 40 years. So like, why are you having such a difficult time with this? So he said, very honestly, he said, because that's other people. This is myself. And frankly, I worked as a counselor with children who had disabilities and it was, it was kind of fun and cool and interesting, but there was kind of a distance after the summer was over, I went home back to my typical life without the challenges that the parents of these children had. And then all of a sudden, fast forward about a decade, now I'm newly married. My wife and I, who don't know each other that well at that time, we, you know, we got married. We dated for about six months, beginning to end. And then again, it varies in different uh, sects and religions. And in, in, in Orthodox Judaism, we tend to get married quicker. So my wife and I, you know, in total, maybe knew each other about a year and a half when our son was, whatever, however long, maybe a little more than that, when our son was born, and all of a sudden now our whole lives have been turned upside down. So in response to your question, Trisha, it was definitely jarring. It definitely took a few months to kind of uh, get, you know, speak for myself, to get my bearings, and uh, it was definitely difficult. It was definitely required uh, support and consultation with others. Thankfully, it's turned around, you know, a million degrees, and it's one of the greatest sources of joy that we have today. But at the time, we didn't know, you know, and we were, we saw the challenges, not the opportunities. How old is your son now? He's 15. He's a big boy. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. So when you found out about your son having um, Down syndrome, what strain, I guess, did that put on your relationship? And, and what strategies did you and your wife use at that time to kind of push through, you know, that, that unexpected news? You know, there was a lot of noise in the background, meaning that it's part of communication too, meaning everybody has advice for you, everybody has guidance for you, everybody thinks you should, you know, they know what's best. There were even people who were encouraging us to give him up, not to take him home, like not to have that challenge or that quote-unquote burden, which was jarring as well. These were people that we cared deeply about and we trusted for advice and guidance, but it did not resonate with us at all what they were saying in this particular context. I think they were just acting irrationally or emotionally and, but that, that added, you know, stress in that challenging time. We were fortunate in the sense, it sounds ironic, but we were fortunate in the sense that his name is Yedidja, or in English would be Jedediah. He was our, he was our first child. So we weren't like overburdened or strapped with other children who were pulling at us. So in a sense, we could put all our attention and focus on him. In a sense, as a baby, he was like any other baby. You know, he's a little slower developmentally, but he really was very cute and fun to play with. So that kind of eased the, the challenge. And on some level, and there's different studies on this, some people find having a child with a disability could, could wreck their marriage. Other people find that it strengthens their marriage. I think in our instant, we were relatively newly wed, and it really gave us something to rally around together, and it kind of, kind of you know, binded us together in a stronger way, uh, which I think was a, was a blessing in disguise. So I think, uh, if anything, it definitely brought us you know, closer together. That's so fantastic, because... So Trisha and I are both speech pathologists, and we work with children with disabilities. Trisha does now more speech coaching, but I mean, from firsthand experience, a lot of parents that I work with, it, it doesn't work because the strain placed on their marriage is so much. So I like how you said it could go one way or the other, and I love how it brought you and your wife closer together because, I mean, that's ultimately what's best for your family. I'll add, I mean, we were, again, everything, every situation is different. And I don't judge anybody who makes different decisions or, or doesn't 
succeed with what is an enormous challenge. We also were fortunate in the sense that we were living in Jerusalem, Israel at the time. We were kind of living this kind of like really beautiful life. Like I was, I had taken off, I had been working as an attorney for a number of years. I had put away some money. So we were actually like for a number of years, just kind of like living off savings. And I was studying, I was developing my interest in, in psychology and therapy. We were, it was kind of like, a, it was living a little bit in an oasis. So again, if yeah. you put somebody with this type of trauma, I'll call it a trauma or a surprise in the context of multiple other children and other financial strains and you know, a lot depends on all the different dynamics. We happen to have had a lot of other things at play that made it easier for us to adjust to the particular challenge. Yeah, and for anyone listening that maybe is in that situation, I think it's a great message that regardless of whatever external factors you had to help you, there's always a way through communication to make the situation easier. No, it won't be easy, or perfect, but it at least can become something beautiful. And from that, it obviously inspired your work with this nonprofit. And so a lot of good seems to have come from that as well. I'll just give it just, it's a little bit off point, but just a great communication point as well. Just, I was talking to my wife this morning about this. It's funny. You were saying, you know, through communication, people can bridge gaps, no matter what the surrounding challenge is. My wife and I last night, she came home from a party, an event, a socially distanced event, and I was studying, preparing my morning lecture, and I was very intensely involved. And she walked into the house about 9 o'clock. We hadn't seen each other yet. And I kind of just like, she wanted to ask me something. I kind of just like waved her off. And I didn't mean any, I really didn't mean any affront or offense or to be cold. I really was just fully engrossed in my preparation. And I really didn't want to, quote unquote, suffer a distraction in that moment that was going to set me back. But later on that evening when I saw her, so she was kind of like a little bit like in a bad mood or she was like put off by the fact that she felt like I kind of quote unquote dissed her. And it wasn't until this morning when we kind of communicated and I, she explained to me that she was frustrated by that encounter. And I explained to her, no, no, it was, it was not, you know, it was not meant in any way. Just what I'm studying is very difficult. It's very challenging. I really was like all in. I didn't mean to, you know, but a lot of things we just, we just, we misconstrue or we misinterpret things all the time. So yes, it's certainly such a critical tool, which is the, I think the purpose of your podcast, which is a great value that you're offering to society to encourage people to share their feelings and communicate as much as possible. Because in that instance, I'm sure just something having her know, hey, when I'm studying, if I'm brusque to you, it's don't take it personally. It's all on me. That could alleviate the situation. I'm sure you spoke about it and that helped. I want to shift gears a little bit, just something that I've been wanting to ask because We've touched on it briefly in other episodes, but I think you'd be a wonderful person to really help us with this particular topic. You are a rabbi, and you do other work with your counseling practice, and you wrote a book and have a podcast. So one thing I'm curious about, because I noticed on your website that you mentioned you don't necessarily just work with Jewish people. You can work with people of all faith backgrounds. So I personally am a very strong faith, very spiritual person. I'm Catholic. Molly, on the other hand, is not spiritual, religious at all. That doesn't affect our friendship. But curious, what strategies do you have or how do you communicate with having this strong faith? And how do you communicate some of your ideas and beliefs and help other people who don't necessarily have those views? It's a beautiful, it's a beautiful, no, it's a beautiful question. It's an inspiring question. It's something that 
we need more of in society. You know, we, we live in a, a fractured, the three of us are having a conversation right now. You know, one of us is on the West Coast, one of us is in the Southeast, one of us is here in the Northeast. We're all across the country. And in reality, you know, we live in a fractured world. I don't think that's a secret. And there is so much partisanship and there's so much fracture. Uh, values in society, uh, depending on your religious orientation, are, you know, amiss or are not amiss. But it's just a we live in complicated times. That, that's the simplest way to say it. And it doesn't appear like things are getting easier. Certainly communication between people who are of different religions, of different orientations, in, in a helpful way in terms of listening to each other, is something that's incredibly valuable. Look, I find that the Jewish religion does have certain norms, and particularly within our sect of orthodoxy, we tend to have expressions or words that mean things to one another that an outsider wouldn't get or wouldn't necessarily understand what we're saying. But, you know, be that as it may, I find that a lot of the terms or values that I espouse within my tight-knit community can easily be communicated or translated to a broader audience. You just have to use different language. It's, it's interesting because I'm, I'm trying to write a second book right now. It's coming along slowly, a sequel to my first book. But one of the regrets I had after my first book was that I don't think I wrote it uh, as openly as I should have, meaning I don't think I used language that was as accessible. It was interesting because my book is like a religious ilk. I actually had uh, a wonderful uh, professor, Professor George, who's like a, a, a renowned uh, professor at Princeton, wrote the intro. He's a, he's a devout Christian. And Robbie George, and he, and he, uh, you know, so it was. It was meant really to speak to a broader audience, and yet, I think I couched the book in too many terms that were unique to my community. So that's a lesson that I took from that first experience. You really have to, if you're writing for a broader audience. And recently, I've been, I've been appearing as a as a guest on different podcasts and trying to, frankly, broaden my reach because I think there's a message here that that doesn't have to be limited just to my unique insular community. I think that there's a message of what we call Torah values, of spirituality, of, of meaning, of, of, of things in life that it should, family, things that should be prioritized. So I think that that is something that can speak to all different types of people. And I think in terms of your, your, your nuanced point about people that aren't spiritually inclined, kind of, I think we, we impact people, people to people. If people sense sincerity, if they detect a person is sincere about their faith. They may not may, may not speak to them. It may not make sense to them, but they're they're respectful of it. And I think if we model behavior that's exemplary, so then people can admire that, and maybe that has a small trickle down effect or impact at some point, as opposed to religious people who maybe uh, don't live up to the the models or values that they espouse. So it's a complicated, multi layered question. But I think yes, I think there is ample opportunity with some thought to really build relationships across denominations and religions. And I think that it's something that, particularly in the times in which we live, it could be very valuable and something that I would encourage more people to engage in. Yeah, I think we're a very divided country in many ways, religion being one of them. So I actually have a lot of experience. A lot of my friends are pretty religious, and I am not at all. And it's because I know my friends are really good and good people at the core that we can communicate. And I think Trisha, for example, does a really good job communicating her values to me in a way that I can understand, just like you were saying. I had one friend before she was telling me something about some about her beliefs, and she was saying, oh, I'm so sorry, I'm using a lot of Christianese right now. <laughs> and I said, oh, what? <laughs> um, but then she broke it down for 
quote unquote, like layman's terms to me. And we just connected so much better. So I love that fact that you're saying, break it down so people can understand across denominations, across religions, because the point is, I think we can all get behind being good people and our values. 100%. I'll just add, it just that you kind of made me think of this. Evangelical Christians and Orthodox Jews tend to have a lot more in common than Orthodox Jews and liberal Jews. That's kind of like a little bit of a shocking statement, but it, it kind of shows that there is a kind of whatever, you know, I'm not going to hold discussion now about conservatism, conservatism versus liberalism, but it, it's, it's conservative people can connect no matter what religion they're from, and conservatives versus liberals can be at loggerheads even if they're part of the same religious sect. So it's, it's, it's kind of, it, it's, it's way more nuanced than just kind of what religion you're part of. It has a lot to do with kind of orientation, expectation. That's where we need better communication to kind of break, break down these divides and these barriers. Very true. And I think it really comes down to the language that you choose to use, because if every time I talked to Molly and was giving her advice, even it, or saying what my values were, if I put it in terms of, well, the Bible says this, she's going to tune out and say, no, right. like, that is right. that's so smart. That's so smart. That's so smart. Like we, that is so smart. People have triggers that put up a wall. <laughs> so, right, if you're talking to a person who is irreligious or is not, you know, inspired by religion, one has to be careful. You can communicate the same message, but you don't have to couch it in. I have this even with my congregation. Like, you have to know your people and you have to know what types of speeches are not going to resonate. You know, we tend to live in a, in, a, in a generation as a parent of children, as a teacher, as a pastor, where and, you know, maybe in earlier times, people were more open to a kind of a more of a, what's the word I would translate into English? I know what the Hebrew word is, but a kind of like more of a, uh, the word in Hebrew is what we call it musr, which means like more of like a, like a, not harsher, but a kind of like a more rebukey type kind of, I'm teaching you what's right and wrong. Mm -hmm. Nowadays, people just want love. They don't want to be told they're doing anything wrong. They want you to look, look the other way if they're not living the way they're supposed to live, et cetera. And that informs also we as rabbis how we communicate with our with our congregants a message of positivity, uplifted, inspiring, as opposed to like pointing out kind of flaws that doesn't doesn't resonate with people at all today. Yeah, yeah and I, I would also say too, as a person who's not spiritual or very religious, it's my job too to notice and break down my own biases when I hear the word Bible, when I hear the word rabbi, when I hear the word you know devout. Um, and so I think there's work that we can do on both ends communication wise. I, even for example, like I'm, I'm, I'm presupposing something here, but like, we're having a nice conversation. I'm a rabbi. Maybe you weren't so keen on having this conversation with me. I don't know, but I hope that through this conversation, you're kind of warming up to the idea that, you know what, there could be a normal rabbi and like, it doesn't have to be so off putting so on and so forth. But that's my point. A lot of it is like the interpersonal they can kind of remove the barriers that often, but you're right. It also helps to be self-aware of the barriers that we put up. Yeah. And I like what you said, Molly, just knowing what words and what you said, how I go in of it, knowing what words trigger you. And if this word triggers you ask yourself why, and is it because we were, Molly and I were having a conversation recently with someone who was talking about how they tried to rebel just because they felt like that was the cool thing to do. And then they realized that this is actually not coming from me. This is still society inspiring me to go to a certain route that isn't necessarily authentic to my beliefs. So are you 
off put by the word Bible because you're like, I'm not Christian. That's not me. Versus are you actually listening to the message behind it? So you think as mentioned, or the word rabbi, it's a two way street of figuring out why those words trigger you and making sure you're not just giving into that bias. But also if you're the one communicating the message, be sensitive to the words that might trigger that person because they might not have that deeper understanding of why they're biased to that word in the first place. And I think this is relevant to, I like that you brought up conservative versus liberal because this can be applied to political discussions as well. We know our country is so divided at the moment with political parties. So I think even just being cautious when you're talking about the policies that you believe in, not saying necessarily this Republican idea or this Democratic, you know, and just talking about the issue itself without putting those labels on it. And I think you'll find that people have a lot more in common than we think, and we don't have to be so divided. No, I think that's, I think that's, that's a very valuable point. We live in this cancel culture where if you don't agree with me, you basically don't exist. You know, you're canceled, you're X'd out. And we need more and more people like yourselves who are advocating for communication. It's not being modeled for us on the highest levels, sadly, of government. This, you know, neither side can really hear what the other one is saying, and, and the approach becomes let's just mow them over. And it's not really, it's not, I think, I think people on both sides of the aisle are kind of frustrated with the dynamic. They just don't know the way out. But I think we're discussing a way out, but it needs grown ups in the room to kind of uh, implement what we're talking about, which, you know, it's a big ask right now. <laughs> Beautifully put. <laughs> so, um, to wrap up a little bit, I know you mentioned you are writing your second book. Can you tell us a little bit about your first book, Living with Patience, Perseverance, and Purpose? Sure. So the, the title of my book is actually, We're Almost There, Living with Patience, Perseverance, and Purpose. So I love that title, We're Almost There, because I, I didn't realize it at the time, but subsequent to the publishing of the book, which is now almost about four years ago, it's a phrase that I observe people using all the time. We're almost there. We're all, are we almost there? We're almost there. Like it's 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 something that it's actually part of nomenclature that people say that all the time, and it communicates to me on a deeper level this idea of we're all going somewhere in life. We all have a a process, a pathway, and we're trying to reach a destination. But often we lose sight that the the process is the is, is the is the destination. This is not my own idea. This is something if you listen to contemporary. Uh, thought leaders out there, you know, that many of them will talk and bring you to this, this idea. If you, uh, Gary Vaynerchuk, Gary V is somebody that I, I listen to very often. Interestingly enough, he, he actually talks about this a lot. Uh, interestingly, he couches the idea. It's the process. It's about doing what you enjoy. It's about doing what you love. It's not about a destination. It's not about making a certain amount of money. It's about, so I, I wanted to talk about this using the prism of my own life, because as we talked about earlier, having a child born with a disability as your first child and other frustrations or things that didn't go the way I anticipated in my life. So I began to kind of appreciate this idea, this mantra. Like till I was about 30, things went pretty smoothly. And then all of a sudden, different hiccups started to come in the way. And you begin to appreciate that, you know, things don't always go just like on a straight line. We're almost there. We're trying to get somewhere. It takes time. You have to hold the vision. You have to trust the process. You have to realize that. And, th and that the process is part of the is part of the destination, the goal. So I decided to write a book that talked that kind of illustrated this idea in different different milieus. One was raising a child with a disability. One was 
the challenges I had in finding a spouse. It took me longer than most of my community. So that was another area that I, that I guided or shed light on. Talked about having faith in challenging times, different things that were going on in the world at the time. I mean, it would be very apropos and relevant right now in a pandemic in terms of holding on to one's faith. You can translate it to whatever the challenge is circa 2020, 2021. But I was, I was motivated to kind of communicate in the written word. It was something that I, I find very therapeutic different than, than speaking. It's a different art, something that I tended to, I didn't know I was good at it, but it just kind of like tended to like realize I was decent at it. And I found it was, it was impacting people that were reading it. It was impacting people that, that, uh, that were exposed to it in different ways. And it was exciting to do. I just, I love it. It's just, it's just a time consuming process, but I do, I did feel like that book wasn't done. Like there was, there's more to it. So I want to kind of I want to write a second book called We're Still Here in contrast to We're Almost There and kind of explore, kind of continue to explore the, continue to explore the journey and maybe evaluate or analyze different things, including this pandemic. I've been writing a little bit about the pandemic in recent weeks and months uh, from a perspective, a religious perspective, and I hope to continue to do that and flush out some of these other ideas in, in the written form of communication as well. So do you think we're ever there? Life is the no, no, that's the point. I mean, no, I don't, I don't. I think we're there. I think we're there when we're, you know, when we're buried, you know, six feet under. Meaning that's when we're there. Meaning whenever our lives end, whenever that each person's trajectory is different, that's when you're there. Meaning you've completed your mission here on Earth. As a, as a believing Jew, we believe that there's a the world to come, which is the which is the goal, which is that we're earning our reward here in this world to get to that better life, that better existence. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you're not. You're never there until you're there. You're never there until you're there. But that's the point. I think. I think people need to understand that that there's always more to grow. There's always more to do. There's no purpose in being here, mm-hmm. and never to rest on on your laurels. If you've had tremendous success, you find the the most successful people are still hungrier for more. Whatever, however you measure success, the people who are frustrated and haven't yet attained what they want to attain. So there's still tomorrow. There's still more time. So the message I think resonates on either side of the aisle. I love. We talk a lot about our own self work and learning about ourselves on this podcast. And I've had this discussion with a lot of people, like working on yourself never ends. I think that's a great way to put it. Like, are we there yet? No. Once I achieve the goal that I was putting out for myself, there's going to be more. And I think that finding the beauty in the journey, like you said, is such a great mindset to have. And I can do better at that. I think all of our listeners could probably would probably benefit from hearing that too. I was listening to a friend of mine who was actually a guest on the podcast recently, and and the, and the, and the hosts asked him like, "Oh, you you've accomplished so much. You're such an expert in realm A, B, and C." And my friend said, "I'm an expert in only one thing, which is called trying." He said, "I'm an expert. I'm an expert at trying." That's all he said. He said, "I'm not an expert in my marriage. I'm not an expert in, as a parent. I'm not an expert as a professional. I'm an expert in trying," which is a great way to say I try to be better every day, and that's it. And I it resonated with me a great deal. In the sense that, yeah, like, you know, I'm a jack of all trades, master of none or master of some, but I'm always trying to be better. Exactly. Fantastic. Wonderful advice. So we like to end every episode with one takeaway for our listeners. So if there's one thing either related to something we discussed or something we didn't that you think our listeners can put into action to do to either become better communicators or improve their life in some way, what would that step be? 
So thank you for that question. One of my one of my favorite lectures that I that I deliver in different platforms and forums, I used to give it much more in person. I haven't been able to do that recently. It's called, in essence, like the art of communication in the age of Facebook, Twitter, the iPhone. You can adapt that to the age of, you know, you can you can adapt it to the age of Instagram, the age of you know so on and so forth. So many different uh, apps and social media. You know, today I think TikTok is a big one today, etc. <laughs> you can. At the end of the day, uh, I think that we have to appreciate what technology has given us in terms of communication, but we have to also appreciate the drawbacks that are also part of parcel of that. When we're communicating with a loved one with a quick text or with a smiley face, that's not like the love letters that my grandfather used to write my grandmother in the 1930s. These long, beautiful, effusive, passionate letters. So we have to be aware that every medium has its pros and its cons, and particularly in the realm of communication, I think it's always important to err on the side of better communication or more elongated communication or maybe more of old-fashioned communication than kind of relying on the text, email, et cetera. Again, these things are very valuable and very powerful and potent. We couldn't live without them, but at the same time, we have to always be conscious of what we're trying to accomplish in a particular context and sometimes think out of the box and think maybe there's a better way I can be doing this, whether it's in a business, you know, mindset or context or certainly in a, prof in a, in a personal one. You're speaking my language. I'm so going to say that with the letters and the, you know, I don't like texting and modern technology, but obviously they are powerful tools. That's literally why we started this podcast. So I love that you bring that up. So where can our listeners find you? You have a podcast and a book and services and a nonprofit. So what is the best way for people to find you and reach out to you? So the most centralized place to locate me is on my website. It's rabbidavidmcohen.com, rabbidavidmcohen.com. On that platform, you'll be able to find all my different social media channels. I'm very active on different social media channels, LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, etc., so on and so forth. I have a podcast called the JPP, the Jewish Philanthropy Podcast, where I've actually been interviewing some amazing guests. I actually had Craig Newmark, who was the founder of Craigslist, was actually a guest of mine. And tomorrow I'm going to have uh, Josh Kraft, who is the son of Robert Kraft, the owner of the New England Patriots. And he's going to be talking about his philanthropic work. I'm very engaged in, in the art of philanthropy through my not-for-profit that I work for called, called Yahad. So I'd, I'd welcome you know, any of your guests who want to reach out and through any mediums and uh, continue the conversation. Uh, I'd love that. Thank you so much. Of course. Thank you so much for being here and for all of the wisdom that you shared. And thanks, everyone, for listening. Thank you and continue. Good luck with this great podcast and this great medium that you are communicating.